Thank you for your testimony, and I heartily commend that ministry to you, especially if you're looking at making a change in your life, because we're, you know, we've done resolutions, and a lot of us have already failed in our resolutions a week in. And so today I want to talk about changing our change, how we change. There's a better way, a way that leads to transformation. But first, so a couple of years ago for Leslie and I's anniversary, I wanted to make a Harding swing. Uh, the problem is I have these delicate book reading hands and I don't know how to do stuff like make a Harding swing. But Jimmy Cohn, one of our shepherds, he's built like a lot of stuff in central Arkansas. So I said, can you help? Which is a very generous way of asking what I was really asking, which is do most of it. And so brother Jimmy, we got some lumber and brother Jimmy pre-cut, pre-drilled, did all the stuff. In fact, this is a picture of brother Jimmy and my Indian brother, Simron. They're all the wood that he had pre-cut and stuff. And then I come over a couple of different afternoons and like a Lego set, just put it together with his help. And I did, you know, just a little bit of stuff. He did, uh, Leslie's here. He did 50% of it, you know, (laughs) anyway, at one point while I'm working on it, brother Jimmy tells me I'm like uh, drilling a hole. Brother Jimmy says, do you know that Betty Crocker decades ago made a cake mix that only required people add water? And nobody bought it. And they did market research and they're like, they discovered people like to feel like they've contributed to things. And so they went back and they made another cake mix that required people just to add water and one egg. And it flew off the shelves. And I'm drilling this and I'm like, why are you telling me this? (laughs) Is this not human nature? We don't want to participate in something we don't feel like we have contributed to. And this is where the gospel starts to work on us. Because a lot of us think about grace. You know, big fan of grace, love grace. We think about grace the way we think about going to the bank to get a loan. You know what you have to do? If I, have to go, if I go to the bank to get a loan, what do I have to prove to them? That I don't need the loan. Right? Like, look, I've got everything, really. I've got all the resources. It's in our both best interest for you to give this to me. And if we think of approaching God and God's grace like that, you have missed the entire point. Today, we get to one of the stories in the Bible that's the best known. But the danger is there's so much baggage, we will actually miss the entire point of it. And so, in order to kind of shock you, I want to show you this picture. This is a cotton mouth that was found in our um, creek in our backyard. I saw that cotton mouth. I freaked out. I threw a rock at it. Um, and then I had a big burly friend that was with me. He helped kill with a garden tool. And then I held it up to let everybody know what a man I was. But afterwards, I went to our kids. I hate snakes so much. I went to our kids and I was like, well, kids, we have to move now because I hate snakes. And one of the stories in today's text that uh, is surprising is a snake, salvation from a snake. So let me set this up a little bit. God delivers the Israelites from slavery and he brings them to Mount Sinai. He gives them the commandments for how they're supposed to live and they break them immediately. So God says, you know what? I'm not going to let this generation of Israelites go into the promised land. So for 40 years, they wander around the desert and they complain nonstop. And, and 
there's this one point in the book of Numbers where they complain five back-to-back times in Numbers chapter 21. And Moses and God are both fed up with all the Israelites complaining. Where they're like, you know, back in slavery, we at least had really good meat. They're complaining about the food at this story. And in Numbers chapter 21, this is what happens. So the Israelites complained. Uh, they grew impatient. They spoke against God and against Moses. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, you know what? We sinned. Uh, we, when we spoke against the Lord and against you, pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So... Moses prayed for the people and the Lord, this is God's idea. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole and anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. And when anyone was bitten by a snake, they looked at the bronze snake and lived. That's a crazy story, right? I love how casually it's like, and so the Lord sent venomous snakes to bite them. Like, that's a thing we would totally expect God to do. And the only thing more bizarre than the problem is the solution. God has Moses make a bronze snake on a pole, uh, which is, by the way, the Egyptian god for healing. It was a symbol for the Egyptian god of healing. To this day, hospitals around the world use a snake on a pole as their symbol. Because nothing says healing like a snake on the pole. It's a pagan symbol. It's a pagan symbol. And this is the weirdest story in the world to have to teach on. If it was me, I'd like to just tuck this away, be one of those family secrets. The problem is Jesus taught on this story. He thought it was central to who he was and what God was doing in the world. It was a window into how to understand what God was doing. So we're in a series going through the Gospel of John. And today's passage is the most famous in all the world, the most famous passage of the Bible. It's made famous a lot by football. Like for decades, there was a person who would go around and hold up this passage behind every extra point and field goal. Tim, Tim Tebow, a decade or two ago, made it the most Googled search by putting it as the verse on his eye black. Politicians have used it to create a voting block. And so when you hear this story today, you have so much baggage. You, you think it means something that it's out, almost the exact opposite of what it meant, what it means. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 3. Now there was a... It's starting in verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time in their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. 
When Nicodemus hears this, he's not thinking of televangelists and Southern Baptists and Billy Graham and Jimmy Carter. When Nicodemus first hears this, it is a brand new idea in human history. And so he's confused. At first he takes it literally and he's like, man, Jesus, mom's been through enough, hasn't she? And Nicodemus is saying, Nicodemus thinks Jesus is saying, you've got to go through the first birth a second time. That is not what Jesus is saying. He is not saying, he's saying you need a totally different kind of birth. And that's where things would have started to get a little offensive to Nicodemus. Because back in the first century, Jews disagreed about lots of stuff. But the one thing they all agreed on is if you were a Jew, you were in. You were a part of the people of God. You were a part of the kingdom of God by the virtue of your birth. Because Abraham was your great-great-granddad. You were a descendant of Abraham. It's, it's the people on the outside of this family that are a problem. And Nicodemus is not just a Jew. He is a winner in society. He is intellectual. He's an intellectual elite. He's probably wealthy. He's a public intellectual. He's a social leader. He's wealthy. Not to mention he's also incredibly moral. I want you to know this about Nicodemus. He is the best of them. He's really, really good. He's open-minded. Some of the other Pharisees are angry with Jesus. They get mad at Jesus. They want to kill Jesus, but not Nicodemus. Nicodemus is like, I want to hear what this guy has to say. He goes to him. He asks him about the kingdom of God. And Jesus' answer is the last thing he would have expected because Jesus tells this wonderfully decent, very moral, good guy, you must be born again. And Nicodemus doesn't get that any more than we do. And so Jesus goes on. Nicodemus said, how can this be? You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know. And we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. In order to explain to Nicodemus what he's talking about, he refers back to this obscure, bizarre story of Moses holding up the snake in the wilderness when people were dying from their own stupid choices. It's not a time in Israel's history they're proud of. It's a time when God saved the Israelites in spite of themselves, and he saved them, watch this, through a pagan foreign symbol that everybody else knew that's not Jewish. That's their symbol of salvation. And here's where Jesus is actually starting to talk about the cross because he is going to die on a pagan instrument of war. To the Romans, the the cross doesn't mean salvation. 
The cross means shame and conquering and condemnation. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus that when God did that with Moses, it was a foreshadowing of what God was going to be doing in him. It's the last place. And the part of the problem is 2,000 years of Christian history, you think of the cross the way nobody else has thought of it. You think, oh, it's jewelry. Oh, it's this religious symbol. It is not a religious symbol. It is a symbol of conquering condemnation and shame. The cross was a symbol of Rome's absolute power and oppression. And it's the last place you would look for a Messiah. But Jesus is saying, if you want to understand what I'm doing and how the kingdom of God works, that's what you've got to look. And the most offensive part to Nicodemus is the part that would give us the most comfort. It's when Jesus says, for God so loves the... Not for God so loves the Jews. Not for God so loves the Pharisees. But that God is doing this for every human being. This is a real big thing in the Gospel of John. So the children of Abraham are a a big conversation point in the Gospel of John. Like in John chapter 8 where that famous passage where Jesus says, You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. He's actually saying that to religious Jewish religious leaders. And they're like in John 8, they go, We're Abraham's descendant. We've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say we need to be set free? And Jesus says, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And a slave has no permanent place in their family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's descendants. You are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. There are two families in the Gospel of John. There are the children of Abraham and the children of God. And Jesus is saying to the children of Abraham, you're not acting like Abraham because Abraham trusted God. He was a child of God. All throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. He's talking about the cross, dying. He says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And then in the middle of the Gospel... These Gentiles, which are you, non-Jewish people, they come to the disciples of Jesus and they're like, we want to see Jesus. And the disciples go and tell Jesus, we, we want to, these Gentiles want to see you. And Jesus at that moment says, my hour has come. It's like, how un- anticlimactic is that? We don't get this because we live in a world that thinks it's wrong to be tribalistic. We, we think everybody knows it's wrong to be tribalistic or racist, even as our world is increasingly going, growing tribalistic and racism. But Jesus, and the Gospel of John is big on this. We'll look at it next week. Jesus is the place the Western world has got the idea that your primary identity isn't found from what family you're from, what ethnicity you're from, what tribe you're from. Do you know what happens at the cross? All throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus is leading up to this. Jesus creates a new family. He says to his mother about his disciple, John, woman, behold your son. And to John, woman, son, behold your mother. I'm thinking now about real practical ways this plays out. Like John and Gail Clark, 30 years ago at church met Grant Russell. Grant Russell, who was a part of the senior saint class, and if he, he just died two weeks ago. He loved to talk about grace. If he was here today, he would say, listen to this story. But 30 years ago, John and Gail met Grant at church, and they all adopted each other. I mean, they 
He, he was their son. He was their best friend. He was their children's uncles. They were power of attorney for each other. In his last few years, they were more than friends. They were family. And anything short of that misses what Christian community really is. Do you know before the cross, um, all the times in the Gospel of John, when Jesus talks about brothers, he's talking about his biological siblings. But at the cross... Or after the cross, when Jesus is resurrected, he says, go tell my brothers. And he's only talking about his disciples. And he says to them, I'm going back to my father and your father. Do you see what this means? These people don't have anything in common. They were natural enemies. There were zealots on one side and tax collectors on the other. And both were called to renounce that as their identity as they are becoming close to the center of this head of the family who is Jesus. That's what Jesus is trying to do here. Do you know sin in the Bible is not so much about breaking rules. It's about breaking relationship. And that means, that's why Jesus is telling Nicodemus, this very good moral guy, you want the kingdom of God, but you can't enter it. Nick, you can't even see it from here because, and this is so important to get, if you believe Jesus, good people don't go to heaven. Children of God do. So a few decades, a couple of decades ago, Leslie and I were in Egypt for a week when we were studying abroad at Harding. And in Egypt, there's hieroglyphics all over the place. And one of the hieroglyphics is something like this. It's scales. It's the judgment scene the Egyptians have. They, every human being enters the world thinking like this. The Egyptians were saying, after, you're die, after you die, your good deeds are on one side and your bad deeds are on the other side. And in my experience, Christians who don't get the gospel do the exact same thing. This is what the human condition is. So here's what it looks like. We're like, you know what? Um, I go to church every time the doors are open. I give. I volunteer regularly. I even won the chili cook-off. I, I, I don't cuss. I don't drink. Or if, if I do, it's not very much. And, uh, you know... <laughs> I, you know, whatever, whatever metric you have chosen because you can rise up to it, that's how we think of this. And then, and then we look around at the other people and they, they do cuss and they do drink and they don't come on Wednesday nights or whatever. A little too, too on the nose there. Okay. And, and, then, and then we look at their stuff and then we look at our stuff and our stuff's just this little bitty, 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 bitty. It's just little bitty. But look at all this other stuff. And yeah, I may get on that website regularly and I, I may, you know, get really angry maybe even toxic towards my relationships. But that's anybody, because all the stuff I'm doing over here. And Jesus is trying to call this whole thing into question. Because good people don't go to heaven. We think if we have all the right, you know, if we, if we get whatever it is that we have deemed this side... And we balance out whatever we have deemed this side. 
We think we're good. And so here's the question for you. How good is good enough? How much do you need to have on this side to outweigh this side? I can't, overestimate, I can't overstate this enough. In my experience pastorally, the way we have preached and talked about the gospel is part of the problem with why younger people are walking away. Let me give you just some anecdotes. One of the biggest problems, I think, is the moralization of faith. That we have over the last 10, 20 years said what it means to follow, what it means to be a Christian is to follow Jesus. And that gets coded like what it means to follow Jesus is just to be a good person. And often that gets coded as just vote the right way. And so what I've experienced dozens of times is people coming to me saying, look, I know the people I go to church with, I know the Christians, and then I also have these friends who are atheists. And they're very good moral people. And they are often very good moral people. In fact, often better moral, more moral people than people in church. That is true. But that assumes a category Christians know nothing about. And what often happens, by the way, this is happening in the progressives and the conservative side of the aisle. This is happening with older and younger people. We think that what it means to be a follower of Jesus is just to be moral and good. And for what it's worth, almost everybody these days is trying really hard to be moral. Younger generations are being called puritans. Because they're trying so hard to be moral. And Jesus' story of the gospel, what it is, rolls over us like a freight chain, if you'll let it. Because let me ask you the question. Is that what Jesus is trying to do? How good is good enough? I, I think Jesus is all for people being, you know, good. But not this way. A totally different way. How good is good enough? Growing up in Churches of Christ, one of the things that I was handed, and maybe you were too, is I, I felt this strong need to be right. What I was putting on this side of the category was like, yeah, I may do that. I may look at that. I may go there. I may treat them that way. But I, I'm not wrong like the Baptist or whatever. I, I had this incredible, and one of the things, preaching has been good for me because I've been wrong a lot. Maybe you've noticed. And that's a sign, it, it, for a while, it caused so much anxiety in me. I'm wrong about it. That's a sign that I must be born again. Jesus doesn't say, go and get your right doctrine. He doesn't say, go and have this experience. He says, believe in me, lift it up. Because he is the king and the kingdom of God has chosen you. But until you realize it, you will be like that, that older brother in the father's house who all these years you've been slaving, not realizing that everything he has was always yours. It's not so much about Nicodemus doing anything. He is doing anything. He's doing everything. It's that he can't recognize the very God who made him who's standing right in front of him. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, look, I've got a different agenda than you. 
I am not trying to make an unethical person more ethical. I'm trying to make dead people come to life. Do you remember what happened when Jesus met Paul, another Pharisee? Paul was like, he was this amazing dude. He was very good. He was very moral. And later on, after he meets Jesus, he says, he talks about what that meant. He said, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was racially pure. I had attained academically. I had attained, you know, I had arrived in every way. And he looked at it and he says, it's all garbage now. He said, my old life doesn't count. My accomplishments are nothing. The old things I live for, they're nothing. The trophies that I had collected, they're nothing. Do you remember what Adam and Eve do when they rebel against God? They immediately feel shame and they put on fig leaves. What, are, what is this but our fig leaves? And your fig leaves might be something like your degrees that you got from the university you're proud that you went to. It might be the pickup you drive. It might be the wardrobe you have. It might be the relationships you're in or the ones you're not in, the ones you've left. It could be the gifts you give or the causes you care about. It could be how you vote, how moral you are. But a person who gets what Jesus is saying today, oh, y'all, this is such a gift from the Lord. You don't have to be all, always so morally self-centered. You're not always looking at yourself. The greatest Christian thinkers in history have, have been telling us this. Dante, in his paradise, the closer he gets to the vision of God, the less self-aware he is. The less self-conscious he is. The closer he gets to the love that moves the sun and stars, the less he's thinking about himself. Do you ever realize or do you ever think about how miserable your your standing on your own rights makes you? Standing on your own dignity? This is what Jesus is trying to say. And this is such, such good news. Because of the cross, because of the nature of who God is, because God did not come into the world to condemn the world, he doesn't play by this system. He came into the world to save us from this system. What it means is the question of your worth has been taken out of your hands and decided in your favor. Yeah, that's so good, y'all. It means this and all the ways you play at this, all the ways you engage this. It's the wrong thing. And it's not just the wrong thing. It will send the condemnation you're trying to avoid on you. Because honestly, you don't want to just be right. You want to be righter. You don't just want to be good. You want to be gooder. And Jesus is saying that actually has to die. And the metaphor is perfect. You got to be born again. Okay, I think I'm looking at people who are mostly born. How'd you get born? Did you have anything to do with that? Who did that? Your mama. That's right. In the days that Jesus talked about this, the mortality rate for mothers was incredibly high. That woman took all the risk. They took all the pain, all the suffering. They did exactly what Jesus did. Babies don't do a doggone thing to get born. And Jesus is saying, I'm that mother. That's exactly what he says. This metaphor runs through all throughout the Gospel of John, and we've missed it. In John 16, as he's talking to the disciples, he's like, you guys want to know why I said I'll be away for a little bit, and then I'll come back? And they're like, yeah, we'd kind of like to know. And he said, very truly I tell you, you will meet, weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come.
But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Jesus is saying, me on the cross, it is the serpent that was lifted up. I am the woman giving childbirth so that you can be born again. Even now, he's in labor pains for you. Because the question of how good is good enough isn't the right question. Good people don't go to heaven. Do you know that? Children of God do. Landon Gilkey was a prisoner in Shangton Compound, which was a Japanese internment camp that was in China right after World War II. And he wrote a book creatively titled Shangton Compound. And in it, he was talking about the detailed ways of how the conditions were for prisoners were so miserable. They starved people. When every resources get limited, people really drop the veneer of civilization. And people were cruel and hostile and selfish to each other. And Lyndon Guilty talks about how a lot of the people that were cruel and selfish were Christians. There were missionaries who were selfish and trying to steal food from other people. There were lots of secular people, but also a lot of religious people, including some Christians that were incredibly selfish and just looking out for themselves. But in the middle of this book, he tells us about Eric Lytle, who was in the compound with all these people. You may know of Eric Lytle. He was the Olympic medalist. He, the movie Chariots of Fire was about him, and he was a devout follower of Jesus. And Landon Gilkey says, yeah, there were a lot of selfish religious people in the compound, but Eric Lytle was something else. In fact, he said, it is rare indeed when someone has the good fortune to meet a saint. Eric Lytle was as close to a saint as I've ever known. He was especially concerned about the teenagers in the camp. He tried to organize stuff for them to be able to have a, a, a childhood that had some joy in it. He shared his food sacrificially with other people. And when Eric Lytle died suddenly of a brain tumor, the whole camp grieved. And then Gilkey ends his book by pointing out, you know, I've thought a lot about this, but religion by itself does not actually change people. In fact, often religion can make our self-centeredness worse, especially if it leads us to what he calls pride in our moral accomplishments. But, he said, what we saw when the chips were down in Eric Lytle was what a human being could be if it was both humbled and profoundly affirmed and filled with the knowledge of God's unconditional love and unconditional grace. And then he ends his book by saying this. This quote, I think about this quote all the time. I commend it to you. He says, religion is not the place where the problem of man's ego is automatically solved. Rather, it is there that the ultimate battle between human pride and God's grace takes place. Insofar as human pride may win the battle, and God will let you win this battle. So beware. Insofar as human pride may win the battle, religion can and does become one of the instruments of human sin. But... Insofar as the self there does see God and so can surrender to something beyond its own self-interest, religion may provide the one possibility for a much-needed and very rare release from our common self-concern. Said another way, 
It does not matter that you grew up in church. It does not matter that you're here every Wednesday. It does not matter that you don't say those words and you're not in that relationship and you don't get on that website because you aren't saved by this system. It does not matter on the flip side that you're at your bottom, that you have seen the bottom of that glass every night for the last 10 years, that you haven't got a family anymore because of it. Because good people don't go to heaven. And God is always looking for people who want to be born again. You can change. But you can't change like this. No one changes for the better like this. You might be able to lick that habit, but then you'll always be judgmental of anyone who was ever like what you just used to be. You'll become miserable to be around And maybe graceless if you can't give this up. And Jesus is inviting us to give this up. It doesn't matter that you volunteer and serve all the time. Or that you give financially. Or whatever metric you use. This isn't the gospel. The question how good is good enough. Isn't a question Jesus is answering. It is all and only grace. And listen. You can change by cooperating with grace. You can change when you're born again by working with the Spirit of God and leaning into your new identity in Christ. But don't misunderstand this story. You can't earn grace. And when you try, it's no longer grace. You know, Nicodemus eventually makes his choice. We don't hear much about him for the rest of the gospel until Jesus is lifted up on the cross. And then Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea go to Pilate and they say, we would like to bury this man you just crucified. And they anoint him with a hundred pounds of spices, which is way more than normal. It was a king's anointing. And they wrap and care for his body, which was the work of women in the first century. This incredibly important, decent, moral guy who has a lot of reputation at stake is now doing the work that he would have seen as beneath him just a few years ago. I think something had changed his heart. This old man was willing to come and do that kind of work. I think he had become born again. I think he was good, but he wasn't good for the same reasons he was before. So I want to end today by asking our prayer teams to take their places around us. Listen. This is pure gospel. And this is not me. This is the story. This is what Jesus did. And I know there's someone here who needs this kind of grace. I think every one of us need this kind of grace. Need this new way of entering into the world, entering into the year, entering into life. The question of your worth has been taken out of your hands and decided in your favor. And so we're going to 